This morning's text on this Palm Sunday is Matthew chapter 10. Um, Matthew chapter 10, verses 29, or really we're going to be 34 to 39. Hear the scripture. Our Lord says, as he continues this discussion on the cost of discipleship, which is chapter 10, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 1, somewhere like that, um, as he talks to his disciples whom he's sending out that has application to us today. Listen. Do not think I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These are startling and deeply disturbing words. And before we go to the text, I want to build a fence around it and then make, go to the text, do some application. But I want to build some parameters to help us understand. Number one, marriage and the family is central to the heart of God. Before sin entered the human race, in the pristine purity of Eden, the Lord God looked at Adam, who had unbroken fellowship with God, and the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And so God gave Adam to Eve and Eve to Adam in the very first marriage. And the scripture says in this wonderful paradigm for marriage, again, before sin entered the human race, uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will cling to each other, and they shall become the one flesh. It was very good. But sin entered the human race, and when sin entered the human race, all type of twistedness and distortion and problems entered as well. And the result of sin is clearly spelt out in Genesis chapter 3. And the Lord says, because you have done this, uh, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But to the woman, he said, I will, put, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So pain is a result of the fall. Your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And he said to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat, you shall have ground that is cursed. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And thorns and thistles, and we can add no seams, shall be brought forth. And you shall eat the plants of the field. But, but, but one result of the fall is verse 16b. It says, to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In other words, part of the result of all is that, is that, is that the women want to browbeat the husband. 
want to manipulate the husband. And the husband, conversely, instead of responding and being grace, the husband will seek to rule with an iron fist, sometimes using his physical strength to subjugate his wife. And that's sin. It's wrong. But, 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 but sin entered the human race. And with all the distortions, and as you read the Old Testament, such, some distortions were um, all types of sexual morality of all types of varieties. Polygamy. This is very clear in the Scripture that God said, for this reason, a man will cleave to his wife, singular, and they shall become one flesh. But polygamy entered the scene with all the jealousies and the issues, so forth and so on. And the singularity of marriage is established again in the New Testament. It says the elder must be the husband of but one wife, the deacon, husband of but one wife. So, so the, 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 the polygamous state is, is a distortion. It's wrong. But even in the midst of all of that, the last book of the Old Testament, a book called Malachi, the, the Lord talks about the charge he's bringing against the, his people, his covenant people. And then he talks about the remedy. He says in chapter 2, he says, you've, you've forsaken the worship of God and, and, and you've broken down the covenant. That's a primary thing. He says in verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, and, and this is the second thing you have done. You cover the, Lord, the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. You're basically saying, where's God? Verse 14, but you say, why does he not? Malachi says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did you not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth for the man who hates and divorces says the Lord God of Israel covers his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless God says I'm not listening to you because you have forsaken the wife of your youth and you've been going about with other women and as you have forsaken the wife of your youth, you've forgotten that I've called you to produce godly offspring. And therefore, I am grieved and my spirit and my power have departed. But then he closes the book by saying, but there's a great, time, a great day coming. A great day coming. And he says this. Verse 5, the last two verses of this book. Behold, I will send you Elijah. The prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And he says, I'm going to send Messiah King, and he will rise with healing in his wings. Next week, Easter, rise with healing. I think. And he says, the result of the coming of Messiah King result of the one who rises with healing in his wings is that, is that the hearts of the fathers will be turned to the children and the hearts of the children will be turned to the fathers. So if that doesn't happen, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So we esteem and affirm the beauty and the glory and the wonder of, of the family. And the, all the old confessions of faith say that if God calls you to marriage, and if you're called to marriage, wonderful, but some of you may not be called to marriage. Wonderful, the Bible says. God gives people the gift of singleness, and we esteem people in their calling. But if you're married, there are three reasons for marriage. One is 
It's very clear. Every confession of faith says this. One is for mutual help. There is a very, I don't recommend the movie because I can't remember what it was like, but there is a movie called As Good As It Gets with a guy named Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt. And in this storyline, which is pretty strange, Helen Hunt kind of develops an affection for this obsessive compulsive weirdo portrayed by Jack Nicholson, which I don't think he had to act. I just had to be himself type thing. And um, anyway, he says to her over a meal, a positive statement, maybe the first positive statement he's, he's uttered in 30 years, but he looked at her and he said, he, he said to her, you make me want to become a better man. It's a great line. That's marriage, mutual help. So number, number two is godly offspring, to have children, be fruitful, multiply. The, the joy of children, the challenge of children, the calling to be a parent. And that number three is for sexual cleanness or fulfillment. That, that's, those are the three reasons for getting married. And, and so the Bible affirms marriage, underscores it. Point one. Point two, Christ is the prince of peace. And yet in this passage, she says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. It's a wild statement. Christ, the prince of peace, at his birth, the angelic host said to the shepherds, peace on earth, goodwill to men upon whom his favor rests. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. Ephesians 2 says Christ came and he preached peace and he is our peace. So throughout Scripture, it talks about peace. And it's, it's, it's not, church, it's not, it's not merely the absence of conflict. The, the, the concept of peace is from the Hebrew word shalom, which is a beautiful interweaving of God and man in obedience and covenantal faithfulness that produces a sense of joy and rightness and beauty in living. It's not just the absence of peace or absence of war. It, it's, it's a weaving together. So Christ is is the Prince of Peace. And yet, in a companion passage in Luke chapter 14, these words are stated, and again, these are breathtaking words. You have to read them in context and think about them. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate, hate his father and mother, verse 26, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he kind of helps me understand the passage when you go to verse 33, just three verses later. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You go, wow. Verse 34, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What Christ is saying is if you want to be salty and preserve and give influence and give flavor to those around you, you make the worship of God the top priority in your life in the name of Jesus. It's a powerful name. It's a beautiful name. It's a glorious name to be worshipped. I want to retain my saltiness. 
And it's easy to lose your saltiness. And Jesus is saying the first way to lose your saltiness, the primary way is to have your allegiances out of whack. So it's a call to life. But it's a call to say that Christ must be preeminent. The Prince of Peace says, I must be preeminent. Number three, as I build a fence, I believe, the Bible teaches, that in Christ all things hold together. Colossians 1. He's before all things. He made all things. He goes before all things. And in him all things hold together. Now, for whatever it is, whatever relationship, whether it's parent-child, friend-to-friend, spouse-to-spouse, whatever. If you want, I believe, if you want relationships in life to sing with, and have a glow about them and have purpose and dignity, then make Christ, the eternal God who became a man, the focus of your worship and your meditation and your thoughts. Point three. Point four is a build of friends around this, just a personal statement. And I'm speaking for 99% of the people here who are married and have families. I love my family. I adore my family, my wife, my two kids that you've loved so well through the years. Thank you. As well as me and Sarah. Thank you. I love them. I adore them. And we have almost five grandchildren. And I am crazy about my grandkids. And I, some people say through the years, well, you know, if you think you love your kids, wait to have grandkids. And I say, okay, okay, okay. Man, it's true, isn't it? Good grief. And, and yet, I look at this and I say, in, in, in the context of, of all of these things, I've got to struggle with what Jesus is saying here. And it's weighty. And it really takes your breath away. I mean, you, you, you read this and you go, wow, he said that. So let's go to the text. I'll make a few statements. So number one, this is chapter 10, verse 1 to chapter 11, verse 1, are some demands for discipleship. Last week we talked about the fear of God. Jesus says, don't, don't fear the magistrate or the bully or the governmental force that's full of graft and corruption and hate who can only kill your body. But you reverence, you worship the one who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell. And just as you can't breathe, he says, listen to this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground without your heavenly Father's knowledge. But even the hair upon your head is numbered. Take heart. You are of more value than many sparrows. So, so really he couches the whole thing in, behold the goodness and the majesty of the Father. And now we turn to this passage, and it's, it's, it's the same thing. So, so the first point, number one, is this. As, as I read this, as you read this, it should create an appalling consternation in our hearts unless you're unhinged and you're sick. Not to be ugly. 
I mean, if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, man, I can do this. I can hate my mom and my dad. I can hate my mother-in-law. I, yeah, no big deal. You're, you're, then this verse, this passage is not for you. There's a wonderful little book by C.S. Lewis, one of my top five favorite C.S. Lewis books, The Four Loves. It's a great book. And, and Lewis is talking about the love of family, and he does it in such an incredible way. And, and, and he says that, that when, when this, this little passage was preached to the disciples, he says that, he said, it is no doubt it's easy enough to love the fellow creatures less and to imagine this has happened because we are learning to love God more when the real reason is really quite different. We may, may be only mistaken the decays of nature for the increase of grace. He says, many people do not find it difficult to hate their wives or their mothers. And he mentions one writer who, who pictures the other disciples stunned and bewildered, speechless by this strange command but not Judas. Lewis says, he laps it up. It's the same Judas who would stick his hand into the account for the poor to meet his own needs. The same Judas who betrayed Jesus during Passion Week. He says, Judas laps it up. So if you read this, you go, you know, I, I can do that. Turn it off. It should cause us to catch our breath and to go, what is he saying? Why is he saying this? So the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 are, are given as a means of convicting us of the necessity for a Savior. And the Ten Commandments, after we're convicted that we need a Savior or a, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, we come to him, then the Lord points us back to the Ten Commandments and says, this is the way you succeed in living a life that's honoring unto me. Have no other gods before me. That's the first one. The living God in his triune glory must be supreme. Number two, don't make idols. Don't make idols. And our hearts are idol-making factories. Number three, <coughs> use the name of the living God in a reverential, awe-inspiring fashion. Number four, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In other words, there are rhythms to your life where you're renewed and encouraged and built up in the Lord. Walk in the rhythm of grace. Number five, honor your mother and your father. For it's the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you. Number six, don't, don't murder with your hand or with your speech. You don't destroy people with words and innuendo and Frivolous attitudes. Number seven, don't commit adultery with your body or with your mind. Number eight, don't steal. Don't steal through graft corruption or whatever. Number nine, don't, don't lie. And, 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 and part of not lying is giving a good report instead of being silent. And number 10, don't covet. And then that, that's the way you really live. But you go to the fifth commandment and Honor your father and your mother. So, so Westminster Confession, larger catechism has questions 125 to 131 or so. It has a great section on the fifth commandment. I'm going to read just a couple of statements. Question 124, who are meant by father and mother? Answer, by father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but superiors in age and gifts, and especially by God's providence in uh, the family and the church and the commonwealth. 
So we're, instead of cursing those in authority in the government, we're to pray for them, in other words. That's how we honor them. And then question 127, how do we honor our parents? Listen to this. I think I've got it up here somewhere. There it is. Okay. should come up. It says this. The honor which we are to give to our parents is due submission to their corrections, fidelity to, defense, and maintenance of their persons and authority. We speak well of them. We care for them according to their several ranks and to the nature of their place, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love as we honor them. And we do, the, do that in all lawful commands. So, church, we're to honor our father and our mother in all things lawful. That's what the Bible says. So instead of appalling consternation, number two, all things lawful means that there are limits to any earthly authority in your life, including parents. Go to Acts chapter 5. The apostle Peter makes this statement, verse 29. We must obey God and not man. When your parents or officials ask you something that is clearly unbiblical, clearly against the standards of God, we say we will take the consequences, but we cannot disobey God. We have to be very careful about, about making idols in our hearts. Number three, as I look at this text, I think we have to soberly deal with and ponder what 2 Corinthians chapter 2 means. So let me just read part of it to you. Verse 14, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. To one group, we are the stench of death. To the other group, we are the fragrance of life. As Paul contemplates this, he steps back and he says, who is sufficient for these? Who can possibly pull this off? And he says, we don't peddle the word of God for profit. We speak as men of sincerity, commissioned by God. And so we speak in the presence of the living God. Now, you think about that. So, so we are to God the aroma of Christ. Listen, to, to some people... As believers, we're going to be the aroma of life. Wow, it's cool to be around you. Man, it is so, it's just, I like hanging out with you because your life and your words, there's just the, there's just the aroma and the reality of, of, of the living God whose name is Jesus in your life. What a great statement. Conversely, to some people, we are the stench of death. Stench. Stench. A few years ago, we went on vacation. Two weeks, we were gone. Got back. Came in the house, and an odor hit us. The freezer had gone out in the garage. So you go in there, and, and it's, it's horrible. You, you just, it's, it's horrible. I remember after Hugo in 1989, you, you go down streets in the area where the power had been off, and you could smell rotting meat. It was horrible. 
you'll never purchase anything called stench of death aftershave. You won't do it. Stench of death cologne. Won't do it. But I look at this and I say, we have to, among ourselves, talk among ourselves and say, listen, as we proclaim Christ and as we live out the reality of our faith, we've got to be willing to count the cost and some, quite honestly, sometimes be the stench of death to, to those around us. A couple of examples. There's an article, there's a, there's a web site called Public Discourse, and they have four or five articles a week I think is very good. Public Discourse. So on February the 28th, I'm just going to read the first paragraph of an outstanding article by a guy named Carl Truman, who taught at Westminster for years. He says this, perhaps one of the most confusing aspects of this present age is the sheer speed with which unquestioned orthodoxies are either crumbling before our eyes or have been completely overthrown. That, that's his thesis statement. He says, it's, 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 the sheer speed, and for those of us who are older, older than 40, 45, you can say, yeah. The sheer speed with which previously unquestioned orthodoxies have been overthrown or they're crumbling. And he gives three examples just as an aside. For example, the nature of marriage. The, the, or secondly, the tight connection between biology and gender. Or the vital importance, thirdly, of free speech to a free society. I, I just thought, yes. There's a curse. It's really a curse. It sounds interesting, but it's really a curse. The curse is this. May you live in interesting times. Listen, you guys live in interesting times. When what was up is now down and what was in is now out. You just don't know. Things are changing with such rapidity. So the, the, the converse of that is may you live in placid, understandable Unchanging times. That's not us. And so as we live in interesting times, we've got to step back and say, wow, I have embraced the cost. And I understand that sometimes in some situations for some people, I will be, thanks be to God, the aroma of Christ. But listen, brother, people, you're going to be the stench of death. It's a hard message. For example, this may have changed some. This is a couple of days old, but uh, recently in San Antonio, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the names. San Antonio, Texas Airport. Now, this is Texas, okay? Not Vermont, not Berkeley, California. San Antonio, Texas, uh, the city council voted to disinvite Chick-fil-A from selling their food at the San Antonio Airport, because Chick-fil-A, they said last year, gave $1.8 million to causes that do not line up with the LGBT movement. They weren't given to anti-LGBT, they're just to causes that support what we have considered to be the biblical Orthodox Western family. It's not any wild and crazy group. And Chick-fil-A wrote back and said, we're sorry we didn't have a chance to dialogue with the town council about that, but it was really 2 million, not 1.8, just to, just to 
just to be bluntly honest, it was two million. I, and I, I remember reading, I'm, I'm reading that and I'm going, Texas. Do you hear me? Texas. There's a movie that's out called Unplanned. I have not seen it. I need to go see it. We don't go to walk-ins. We just don't. We just gave that up for Lent 10 years ago. Uh, I need to go. I need to go to, I need, I need to see Unplanned. It's a story about a woman, true story, about a, a young woman from Texas who was part of a Planned Parenthood network, worked there for, I think, for eight years. She drove people to and from Planned Parenthood for abortions. Um, she was involved in, she says, up to 22,000 abortions in eight years. And then after she had two abortions and had a daughter, one of the physicians supposedly asked her to help participate in an abortion procedure. She'd never seen it before. And she said as they tried to suck the fetus, the baby, out of the womb, the fetus was pushing away from it. And she said at that point her whole worldview collapsed at her feet and she's now very pro-life and has repented of her sin and is really being used the Lord is called unplanned and it's had a great success at the box office but a leading website this week called unplanned quote propaganda close quote it's not propaganda it's a true story it's a true story and I just thought you know we need to sometimes step back and say there will be there will be a, 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 a stench of death. Because we live in interesting times, church is getting more and more interesting. It's crazy. So I, I, think of, I think, for example, in Acts chapter 15, I'm reading Acts through my daily devotions, and I'm in Acts 15, and the background is that the Gentiles have come to faith and Rows, rows of people are coming to faith. They're responding to the gospel and all these Jewish people who are incredibly buffered by their ethnicity say, whoa, what is going on? I mean, is this church of the risen Christ going to be for people that are, that are non-Jews? And somebody said, well, maybe Jesus said, go preach the gospel to all the nations. Yeah, he did say that. So this big gathering called the Jerusalem Council, all the leaders go there and they're trying to decide what to do and a strong defense is given about the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ and says, so, so don't, don't ask them to bear the yoke that we or our forefathers could never bear, which is the law. The law was always to point us to the need for the Lamb of God, the Messiah. And so they sent this letter out and they said, we, we want you to do these four things, Gentile brothers and sisters in the Lord. And the first three deal with Jewish sensibilities at that time. It involves uh, don't, don't, don't uh, make idols. Don't eat blood, because that's against the law, and don't eat uh, animals that have been strangled in their own blood. It's all Jewish sensibilities, sensitivities. You know, be, be careful about offending your Jewish believing friends. And then the fourth is this, and do not be involved in sexual immorality. And you go, hello. <laughs> and so I'm reading some articles about Acts 15, and the statement is made, that the first three are what we call contextualizing the gospel, and the fourth is binding authority. And then they made this comment that in the Greco-Roman world, saying to people, do not have sex outside of marriage, was an astounding statement that took your breath away. I think in the early church, there's a man who's sleeping with his wife's trophy wife. 
And as I pondered that, I thought, America 2019, welcome to the Greco-Roman Empire, where we see sexuality as nothing more than an itch to be scratched and a need to be met. Of all, all, all varieties and all shades. I'm an old guy. I, I grew up hearing in a, in a non-gospel believing community and church that sex was for marriage. My mama, son, first grade, here's your oatmeal and your toast. Remember, sex is for marriage. I heard it. First grade class, Miss Foster. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M. M stands for marriage. Sex is for marriage. Yes, Miss Foster, thank you. I mean, seriously, everywhere you turned. Not true today. And so when you look at the parameters of this, we, 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 church, we have to be well, we have to be, understand that, that it is, we're going to, listen, I'm telling we're going to be considered stench. Stench. Going down this trail, reading a book called Marriage by a guy named David Ayers. It's a great book. And, and David Ayers talks about the crumbling sexual ethic in our country. So even in the church, and he said there's a survey done in the church among professing Christians. I, this blows my mind. This isn't the survey was done in April of 2016 with 17,000 adults in the, in the professing church believers. And, and four out of 10 thought that cohabitation before marriage was, quote, a good idea. Close quote. Just to be clear, it's a bad idea. It's called unholy sex. It's just a bad idea. And I, and I meet people and they say, well, maybe, maybe it, it might be good for us to live together before marriage to see if we can, if we are, if we, you know, can come together. Let me just be bluntly honest. If, if, if you cohabitate before marriage with someone who was raised in the same zip code as you are, but you didn't know him or her, and, and you came from the same type of family, and you both have season tickets to the same college football game, and, and lo and behold, you grow up and you're both like English bulldogs, and, 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 and your favorite pastime is, is watching cage fighting or whatever, and your favorite food is Thai food, and you're both morning people, and, and, and you have everything going together. When you get married, you know what's going to happen. You're going to have conflict because you're marrying a sinner. And it's the grace of Christ that puts it together and holds it in place and lets you go forward in the midst of brokenheartedness and joy. And so you, you read these things and you go, so I, I look at this, Christ must be supreme, which means that there's going to be the stench of death at times. When we speak. Deuteronomy. The, Moses is saying, this is what I want you to do when you enter the promised land. I want you to, all two million of you or so, I want you to divide up. I want half of you to stand on Mount Ebel and half on Mount Gerizim. And you're going to hear curses and blessings, curses and blessings. And Deuteronomy 27 deals with the curses. Twelve are listed. I won't read all of them because some of them are really seedy. They deal with the surrounding culture and their horrendous practices. But listen, it says this. When you get there, first of all, cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image and abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and set 
it up in secret, and all the people shall answer. This is a million, too many people. Amen. Number two, cursed is be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And all the people said, Amen. Thirdly, cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, the, the, the immigrant, the, the person down their luck. And all the people say, Amen. And then it gets seedy and it gets very R-rated. But the last curse is this. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the word of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. I just read that and I thought, what God says is holy is holy. And in a culture that in so many ways is kind of departing. And we pray for revival. We pray for a turning of hearts. You're going to be the stench of death. The stench of death. You're going to be called upon to say, Christ is my Lord. Period. More than my ethnicity, more than my familial heritage. It's tough, but it's glorious. Which brings me to my last point. In the midst, is a very difficult passage. It's a very difficult passage. There is the promise of life. First of all, there's, there's great value placed upon the provision that God brings. Remember verse 29 to 31, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny. No, not one falls to the ground without your heavenly Father's knowledge. You're, much, you're, you're so much more valuable than birds. You're the cranny work of God's creation. You're made in the image of the living God. So there, there's a strong statement about, about the provision that God gives for his workers. That's us. That there's a strong invitation to life. If you see it, you got to look at the strong invitation to life. It's found right here in, in verse 39. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. It's amazing. What an invitation to life. Jesus says, you know, if you want to lose your life, just go down the path of, uh, of whatever you want to do, the inclination of your heart to make idols and, and, and run after success and, and money and these things that the, the, the latest whatever. And at the end of the day, you go, doesn't satisfy. But if you want to really find life, then go hard for me. It's such a powerful statement. Church, I'm just... I'm going, wow. And then he talks about the value of the worker. I'll cover this in two weeks. But verse 40 says this. He says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. When we receive Jesus and we receive his people, we're receiving the triune God. I think of the psalmist that says, my delight is in your people. So, so I, I look at this and I, I say, may all of us really get hold of this sense of destiny. So I, I made a commitment 
yesterday. I went to the library and I got it. It's been on hold for me to read a book. And it's entitled Winston Churchill Walking with Destiny. But by a man named, uh, has written some really great biographies. This, I've never read uh, and Andrew, get it right. Andrew Roberts. It's, it's 1,200 pages. So I thought, oh, man. I've read several Churchill biographies and stories about Churchill. I love Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of England during World War II. I read this week there are 1,010 biographies of Winston Churchill. I've read six or seven, so I've got a long way to go, all right? But, but I love the subtitle. I was really drawn to this. The subtitle is Walking with Destiny. And part of the story is in 1891, when Churchill was 15 years old, who was despised by his drunk, heroin-taking father and neglected by his beautiful and vastly immoral mother, horrible background, who was loved by a broken-down old spinster named Miss Everest, who loved him and tenderly walked with him. It's a great story. I love the story about Miss Everest who died when he was 21 and he kept a picture on his of her on his desk the rest of his days. But when Churchill was 15, he looked at a friend, his best friend who was, who was killed in the First World War. And he says, I really believe that Providence has raised me up to save England in her darkest hour. There you go. That's a pretty cheeky statement when you're 15 years old. Now, if you go home today and your 15-year-old says, you know, Dad, Mom, I really think that God has raised me up to save the United States of America. You'd go, be quiet and eat your peas, you know. And yet, as you go through his life, there was a sense of destiny that marked his days. I want that for us. I'm not saying we're going to save Western civilization. But you've been called to God to live with purpose and dignity. And it's more than chasing after the approval of people or the latest fashion or the latest whatever or this success or this academic accolade or this, you know, fellowship, whatever. Those are all could be good things, but so easily, those things so easily just become idols. Even your kids, man, you love your kids. But can, I, I, can, I said this two weeks ago, I can see how you cross the line and you think, I really want my kids to go to a great school, and if I just give X thousand dollars, I can get them in, and if somebody takes their test score, they can get in, and who, who's, who's going to be hurt by that? I can understand a parent doing that. But, but you, you, you so easily cross the line. Live with destiny as people who walk before God. What a passage. Just got hands and feet. Let your light shine. Speak his name. This week, speak his name to someone. This past Monday night, there was an NCAA championship basketball game between Texas Tech and the University of Virginia. The tip-off was at 9.20 on a school night, which means the NCAA is dumber than a bag full of hammers. Nobody can, nobody can, who can stay up and watch an overtime game and then get up and go to work and go to school? It's just ridiculous. It just made me angry, really angry. It just ticked me off, to be honest with you. And both the teams that played are teams of character. The, the other teams, Auburn, showed incredible character in their loss. Um, but... 
the, the head coach of Virginia is a guy named Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett has been an outspoken, gracious speaker for Christ. I really admire the way he handles himself. I, wait, I admire the way the team handles himself. It is so good to see godly guys do good. It makes me want to sing. Tony Bennett said in the press conference, he said, I, I received a message from another coach who's very familiar with national championships. His last name is Sweeney. And Coach Sweeney said this. He said to me, he said, let the light that shines in you be brighter than the light that shines on you. Think about that. Let the light that shines in you and from you be greater than the light that shines on you. In other words, give the credit to Christ. If you're in the national championship and you're in the spotlight, give the credit. So that's it. That's who we are. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day that you've given us. It is a day to worship and to be with your people and to be refreshed. And I uh, pray for us, Lord. Uh, it, it is so easy. as you, you, you made us and you know us. And that's why the first commandment is no other gods before you. That's why the second commandment is no idols. Because you know how easy it is for good things, I mean really good things, to just take over. And I think you've put places in our lives like the Lord's day and how we handle our, our lives and our money and our witness, that you've put certain markers there to just remind us. So remind us afresh of the goodness of Christ. Remind us afresh of the mercy that you pour into us by the cross. Lord, as we approach this week, we call Holy Week, as we approach the Good Friday and Maundy Thursday and the Passion and the glory of next Sunday, May our hearts be drawn afresh to you. May, may we speak the word of Christ to those around us in brokenness and joy and kindness. And we thank you that there are people right now who do not know you who are in the process by the work that you bring, Holy Spirit, of bringing them in. And so may we be that type of people as we live for you. And we want to give you the glory because your name is worthy of all worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.